Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. When my colleague, KQED reporter Aditi Banlamudi, comes by, my stomach always starts to growl because she's a serious baker. Hey, Sasha, I have something for you. I'm Sasha Coca, and it's the California Report magazine, and we're starting off today with a taste test. Okay, so what did you make, Aditi? Okay, I didn't make anything, but somebody else did, and it's really good. That is a gigantic loaf of bread. Yeah, this bread is actually from Rise Up Bakery, this bakery that opened in San Francisco's Richmond district during the pandemic. Which is when everybody was learning how to make sourdough. That is sourdough, right? This is sourdough. And it did open partially because of that. Okay, I'm about to bite into this honkin' heel of bread that Aditi has brought me in the studio. Oh, my God. Mmm. Isn't it good? This is really, really good sourdough. The guy who opened it is actually really interesting. He's one of the most famous black bakers in the state. And he's trying to invent something new with sourdough, while also trying to make it easier for people who have never baked professionally to get into it. So you went to check out his kitchen for our series Flavor Profile. That's right. We got five minutes until stuff starts coming out. Uh, can you push those back in the fridge? I'm standing inside Rise Up Bakery's kitchen. It's inside a giant warehouse in downtown San Francisco. In the front, bakers are packaging freshly baked loaves into brown bags. In the back, they're assembling loaves of sourdough bread, ready to bake. Ezekwe Anderson, the bakery's owner and founder, is loading loaves into a giant oven. I was one of those people that when you went to a nice restaurant and really good bread came out, I was the one like, can we get another basket of bread? He started baking sourdough three years ago during the pandemic. I was like, oh, well, I'll try with everyone else, you know. And then the next thing you know, it was like, I'm no good at this. And I hate not being good at things. So I was like, I'm going to figure it out. He hooked up several ovens in his backyard and started cranking out loaves to sell to neighbors. Soon, people started lining up to buy a coveted Rise Up loaf. As his business expanded, he hired more bakers and rented out a commercial kitchen. I tell people I feel like I've been duct taped to the front of a rocket ship. It literally has been scaling at the speed of sound. Today, Rise Up Bread can be found in stores from Mill Valley to Martinez and Pleasant Hill. His bread is featured at buzzy restaurants like Flour and Water, Abaca, and The Morris. But Ezekwe isn't used to this much attention. For most of his career in kitchens, he's felt like an outsider. You know, I'm a six-foot-three black guy, right? You walk into a kitchen, and I stand out like a sore thumb. And when there was diversity in the kitchen, he often noticed a racial divide. It's like, you know, all the brown people come in and get everything ready, and then all the white folks with tattoos show up, and they make twice as much, and they're the ones you see. 
So when it came time to hire more bakers for Rise Up, he wanted to give a chance to black and brown bakers, even people who had never worked in a bakery before. For years, Azikwe was making someone else's recipe. Now, he got to invent something new, and he wanted to give others that same opportunity. Susie Brua worked in the fashion industry for more than three decades. But four years ago, after a big birthday, she decided she wanted a career change. I wanted to get back to making something, and I wanted to make something which was compostable and didn't just land in landfill. She now handles Rise Up's recipe development. She's preparing to chop scallions for their K-pop loaf, inspired by Korean flavors and packed full of gochujang, toasted sesame, and roasted garlic. I um, look after all the inclusions, and so a lot of, like, the masala mix has to be cooked, the ube mix has to be cooked, so I make sure that we have enough of all those mixes. Um, curry leaves to make sure that we have them on point. Yeah. To be able to take bread, which is kind of like this ancient vehicle, and then to give it and infuse it with all these different flavor profiles and then offer it up for people to kind of like play with and get foodie with, it's kind of cool. When Ezekwe started branching out from the traditional sourdough loaf into more experimental flavors, he was wary of appropriating those flavors or making something that didn't taste close to the source material. I'm trying my best to take that source material, turn it on its ear and say, this is beautiful as well, right? I just am inspired by this flavor profile and I'm giving you a new offering that if you like these things, you might like this too. One flavor Azikwe was particularly interested in was ube, the sweet purple yam many Filipino desserts feature. The ube loaf took me 20 iterations to get right. I had bought one from him and it was like still in like the testing phase. That's Joanna Bautista, a pastry chef at Abaca, a popular Filipino restaurant in San Francisco. He asked me how it was. I was like, I don't really get, like, the ube yet. I was like, you need more, like, ube in there. It needs a little more, like, umph in there. Ube is one of those trendy flavors everyone is using these days. Even Trader Joe's sells an ube pancake mix. But when it doesn't taste remotely like ube, Joanna says it's hurtful and feels like a wasted opportunity to share something delicious. I feel like... Um, you know, like they didn't do like the ingredient justice. It's like, you know, they jump on the bandwagon, but then there's not really any like thought process into um, how can we make it taste like authentic or how like a Filipino person would like eat it. Azikwe wanted to do it differently. He asked Joanna to teach him how to make ube halaya. So ube halaya is it's basically like a milk jam. So it's like a lot of stirring and it takes like a long time for it to happen. This is the ingredient that makes ube flavored desserts actually taste like ube. Rise Up makes ube halaya from scratch, which gives the sourdough that iconic sweet earthy flavor. Playing with complicated flavors and making sure they taste right to the communities those flavors came from is a really challenging game. At the beginning, you know, it was, you know, over $20 a loaf to make, right? Because all the stuff that goes into it and then all the times that I made it and it didn't turn out because of all the extra stuff I'm putting into it. But then when you make it and you get a letter from somebody and they're like, thank you so much for including us. Ezekwe says that's the best stamp of approval. Okay, so we are in the kitchen and I have... Rise Up's masala loaf. 
Rise Up's masala loaf is particularly interesting to me. It's based off of kara buns, this eggless bun popularized by Iyengar bakeries in Bangalore. My parents grew up eating them in India. Mmm, it smells like a kara bun. I can taste the cumin seeds and the curry leaves. I can see the, the turmeric in the bread. Oh, just got a kick of green chilies. Yeah, this is right. This is right. Does it taste exactly like a kara bun? Not exactly, but that's not really the point. That's the beauty of cultural appreciation. It's a new kind of bread that understands where it came from. It's his interpretation of it, and it's mighty tasty. Oh man, I wonder what would happen if I made a grilled cheese sandwich with this. KQED's Aditi Banlamudi brought us that story about Rise Up Bakery. It's part of our Flavor Profile series about people who pivoted to start food businesses during the pandemic. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Three young singers who soared to the heights of show business on the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an Iowa snow flurry. The singers were identified as Richie Valen, 17, Buddy Holly, 22, and J.P. Richardson, known professionally as the Big Bopper. The aircraft chartered from the Dwyer Flying Service crashed near Mason City. I can't remember if I cried. February 3rd, 1959, the day a terrible plane crash killed three stars of American rock and roll. It became known as The Day the Music Died, and it was immortalized in a 1971 song by Don McLean called American Pie. So bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to Now there's a new book of poetry out called Tarta Americana, or American Pie in English. It unpacks the legacy of Richie Valens, the groundbreaking Mexican-American singer from Pacoima in the San Fernando Valley. He died in that crash when he was just 17 years old, less than a year after signing his first record deal. He's best known for his song La Bamba and for the film of the same name that came out back in 1987. Richie Valens' music and the biopic about him had a big influence on poet J. Michael Martinez. He's a professor at San Jose State. His debut collection, Heredities, won the Walt Whitman Award from the Academy of American Poets. He's also been longlisted for the National Book Award for Poetry. His new book, Tarta Americana, is an ode to Richie Valens and grapples with race, identity, culture, and politics. Let's start with how you first got into Richie Valens' music. Did you listen to him growing up as a kid? I did. My mother um, had La Bamba on vinyl, and it was actually her first record that she owned which I talk about in the book. And so she would throw it on the record player growing up. And then after the movie came out, I was completely enthralled. And so we ended up having the soundtrack always going. And as a child, I would dance to La Bamba. My mom had such a visceral, joyous response to the sound of his voice um, into that kind of opening pluck a guitar. And for me to see my mother 
just immediately joyous and jovial, shaking and ready to dance, that was always a good sign that it was going to be a good day. Mm-hmm. And so it became a signifier for familial joy. So you mentioned the film La Bamba a lot in this book. Tell me your first memories of watching the film. I distinctly remember this. We were in our little TV room. We'd ordered pepperoni pizza, and we had the VHS, and my mother pushed it into play, and it's just the kind of opening music that the film has. And in this particular scene of Latinos and Latinas um, in the fields um, harvesting and gathering. And for me, that resonated in a way that not any other film that I'd seen up to that point as a child had ever resonated with me in that way before because here were people that looked like my uncles and aunts, that looked like my mother, my father. Um, And then Richie not being able to speak Spanish fluently like me, it really changed my perspective of racial identification. Yeah, he was deeply, deeply important, a pivotal figure for me to comprehend what it means to be a Chicano, a Latino in the U.S. You know, one of the things that struck me about the film is we're watching Lou Diamond Phillips portray Richie Valens. And of course, there's a lot of 80s style lip syncing in the movie. And when you get to the credits, you realize that actually isn't Richie Valens singing in the film. It's the band Los Lobos. Yes. Yeah, we don't. We never hear the actual historical Richie Valens singing. We don't hear the recordings. So there's Blue Diamond Richie, there's Los Lobos Richie, there's Richie Richie. And for me, that represents the multiplicity of identities that this mythic figure suddenly inherits at the time in the 80s, that there is multiplicity already within a single self. And to me, that was a doorway in, in, for many of my identities, my intersectionalities. It was key to see that, oh, one can be many and one at the same time. How do you think that Richie Valen's story is a California story? That's a very, very good question. I think that his vision, the dream of being an artist, is something that he grew up in Pacoima, a little bit north of L.A., where he, there is this access to rock and roll, to the dreams of becoming a rock and roll artist. And to me, like that's such a typical American dream, one that California has provided. And he had access to be and to dream in that way. And I really don't think like if he was in any other state that he might have been able to have that kind of cultural dream. And the film starts off with this reference to him being a son of farm workers, which is its own classic California story. And the fact that 
he's a Latino, U.S. Latino who doesn't speak Spanish. That's something that, as I moved to California, encountered more Chicanos and Latinos who I can resonate with for my lack of knowledge of the Spanish language. That's something that's very uniquely American to be identify as a person of color of a certain heritage. But then there are those who might want to police what it means to be Chicano, Latino. Like you need to, you're not Latino if you don't speak Spanish. He's already contradicting that. He's already doing something that's very particularly U.S., uh, very particularly of California in the kind of hybridity of, of identity that he has. Do you always carry a guitar, Richie? Uh-huh. It's my future. Mm, pretty sure of yourself, aren't you? Yeah. Aren't you? So are there parallels that you see in terms of Richie's journey as an artist and your journey as an artist? Yeah, he was very much a presence in my young childhood. And so radically influenced my visions of what an artist can be. Richie, when he was singing, that music was meant to generate community and to generate hope and love, um, to bring people together, to see them in their joy. And we have limited time to perform that, that full effort to pursue art, to pursue music, rock and roll, parallels for me the desire to pursue poetry and language and to cultivate community in the hopes of providing some avenue toward joy. So Richie Valen's name was actually whitewashed. His real name was Valenzuela. Richard, Richard Valenzuela. Yeah. And he did that to become marketable to a white listening radio audience. Yeah, there's a moment in the film where he pushes back. At first, he's like, no, I don't want to change my name. And then ultimately he does because he, you know, is going with whatever the record producer thinks is going to be more marketable. What is it? Your professional name. From now on, it's Richie with a T. R-I-T-C-H-I-E. I got a new last name for you, too. Valens with an S. Richie Valens. How's that grab you? I don't like it. I mean, Valenzuela was our dad's last name. Yeah, certain people with certain colors because they're lighter, they're more digestible in terms of cultural perception and, and cultural difference. The more you look like me, the more I can comprehend you. Um, and I think with Valens, that name becomes more legible to audiences that may not understand the Zuela mm. of Valenzuela. But what's incredible is that Actually, one of his hit songs ended up being in Spanish. Isn't that ironic? And Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, there's this scene in the movie where you've got all of these kids, many of them white, many of them black, dancing to La Bamba, and he's on fire, and they love it. Here he is, America's newest rock and roll sensation, the California kid, Richie Valens! You don't need to compromise in order to be popular, to create art um, that finds itself accessible to different audiences. Um, and to me, that, that was still informs my kind of punk attitude 
my revolutionary attitude toward language, toward teaching, um, that there can be integrity. A lot of this book is actually letters from you to Richie Valens. One of my favorite letters is where you talk about an experience your niece had and how you reacted to it. Richie, this morning my seven-year-old niece told me a story about a girl in her class asking her if she was a dirty Mexican. And frowning, I recalled a conversation with my mother two days prior when my mother reminded me When I was five, when we were the only colored people in the freshly painted suburban all-American picket fence dream on the northwest side of a pretty square town, my mother said one day, after playing on the sparkly slide side of the park, I stumbled home crying, and baby me told my mom then that an older, tall, freckle-faced, red-haired boy kept calling me a dirty Mexican. And my mom said, I cry side to her. I take showers, mommy. I'm not dirty. And Richie, heart emojis pop tart around me as I try to remember being such a small buck tooth bowl cut. And Richie, this morning, 40 years older than four feet, I asked my niece how she replied. And my niece flipped her long chestnut brown hair over her shoulder, and after an intentionally dramatic pause, she lifted her chin and rocking her head on her neck, all Beyonce Queen Bay has deemed you, oh no you didn't, she said. I told her I was Martinez, and then I pushed her butt to the ground. And Richie, fireworks smiling out of the corner of her eyes, for one moment we were both one anticipation. Then, heads thrown back, we're braying trombones, stomping Mary, joy, our preferred stereotype. I love that joy, our preferred stereotype. Yeah, me too. And she made me so proud that day. And I'm so happy that my niece has inherited that this kind of personality from a very young age to now that she's in college where she defends herself and she stands up for herself and how she identifies racially um, in terms of gender. These are all things that she interrogates. It's a long way from 1950s Pacoima, where Richie Valens was really, you know, fighting a very 1950s mentality of whiteness and and what what would sell in music. Who he's allowed to date, like the kind of relationships that he's allowed to, like socially allowed to navigate. Well, that's what the song Donna is about. Absolutely. Is that he was in love with a white girl in his high school. And there's mourning there for the fact that, yeah, it's, where are you? It's not going to happen. It hasn't happened and this sense of desire toward um, unity that I see the song really arcing toward. You know, this book also explores a connection between Richie Valens' death and the death of other young men of color, tragically, at the hands of police. I'm thinking of your poem called Veils Through Veils, 
though face sheared, you crush to me. This was written for Adam Toledo, who was killed by police in Chicago, March 29th, 2021, and for Richie Valens. Bent to pavement, black top, brown face, skin, knee, in the narrow where fallow shadows grip, veils through veils, though face sheared, you crushed to me. Did fame flay you white for white fame's white need? Name knelt, name split, what price for white conscript? Bent to pavement, black top, brown face, skin, knee. I've knelt for the belt, scourged, nail gun to cheek, ash sweet, ass beat, blood slick, a brown convict. Veils through veils, though face sheared, you crushed to me. Four iron entrails crushed, outside quiet strings. Spring's flesh unfolds gold wilds. Must we forfeit, bent to pavement, black top, brown face, skin, knee. Far from shore, we swim the pale... Talk to me about the parallels you're drawing in this poem. Well, for me, it was in regards to that moment that as I say here, white fame's white need, did fame flay you white? The very notion of Richie Valens cutting his name in half, how he was portrayed. And in the images and, and pictures you see, there is a manipulation of tone for skin. And it's very intriguing to see that subtlety. You mean historical photos of oh, Richie yeah. Valens? They yeah. lightened him? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and then for me... There's this relationship to my brothers who are darker skinned than me, who have been pulled over, who have been profiled by police and had guns drawn on them for no good reason. Um, And then one of the deeper resonances was when I heard about Adam Toledo. Um, He was a special education student. He turned and was about to surrender, his hands raised when... Um, Chicago Police Department officer Eric Stillman shot him. And for me, that relationship between men of color, um, kids of color, and how institutions of authority persecute those bodies, that connection between the violence um, committed onto a person of color's body is deeply relevant and connected to the violences that are a bit more ideological or abstract, like the violence of cutting Richie's name in half, um, the violence of how he's sold to the public. Hmm. You know, so many of these letters and poems almost feel like a love letter to Richie Valens from you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Richie became synonymous for me as this energy that we associate with love and how it brings generations like me and my mother, my niece who loves La Bamba, um, different races, um, different neuro um, diversities together. almost becomes the listener and somebody to just bear witness to your own biographical journey as you're mining his. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really right on. Like, he's a vehicle, a spirit, an energy um, that I can ride and identify with to, toward this plane of understanding. Your 
J. Michael Martinez's new book about Richie Valens is called Tarta Americana. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer-director, with big help this week from Izzy Bloom and Jessica Carissa. Brendan Willard is our fabulous sound engineer. And I'm Sasha Coca. You can catch all of our California stories on our podcast, The California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.